Have you ever allowed rage to course through your body? Ever let it spread its fire through your muscles and your breath? Ever considered what there is to be rageful about and the harmful and negligent ways we and our loved ones are treated? What is the relationship between this rage and this love and this grief and your life? This conversation felt like an important one to have in this moment when so many of us are trying to unlearn the ways that we have been taught to meet emotions with control. Lama Rod asks us to allow our rage, to learn from it, and to let it guide our righteous action. His call to let our feelings be our teachers feels even more resonant and instructive in this moment where we're looking for new guides. Lama Rod Owens is a Buddhist teacher, activist, and writer of the new book, Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. It was a pleasure to connect with him and reveal a bit about our own journeys with and through anger. Hope that you can find something in it too. Lama Rod, I'm so grateful that you said yes to this podcast and that you're joining us today. It feels very timely to be in conversation with you. So thank you. Thank you for being here. I think I really appreciate the invitation and being here and just holding the space together. In the last interview we had, we talked to Alexis Pauline Gums. I actually don't know the order that they're going to come out, but one of the things that Alexis said in our conversation was that this was a space for compasses, folks who are providing some direction in this moment. And I consider you one of those people. And also, it feels like it connects up with what I've heard you talk about um, in terms of being a prophet in this moment, too. So I wanted to just start there and say, one, thank you for being that compass, that prophet and stepping into that. And then also from that position, from that role, how would you describe where we are right now? Yeah. Yeah, um, for me, this time feels like being in labor. Like our culture, our lives, the world, our countries, our communities, we're in labor, we're in the process of trying to give birth to something. Um, and and we, we know when we give life to something, there's this quality, this experience of pain, of hardship that we have to experience, that we have to move through, you know, in order to do that. And what we also know is that not everyone survives the labor. Not everyone is going to survive the birth. They're not, even, they're not going to survive to see what will be birthed, you know. Um, you know, when I... When I step into this this position, this role, this location of a prophet, it for me it means that like I have to tell the truth about the times. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all it is. You know, when we when we look at the biblical stories about prophets, we know that prophets are actually often killed. Mm-hmm. You yes. know, because it's it's a symbolic ritual erasing of truth. You know, it's like we can't deal with the truth. You know, and so we do what we can to erase, to silence the truth, even the bodies who embrace and embody the truth. 
Um, I think one of the things that we're experiencing also is, is this is the apocalypse, you know, and maybe not the apocalypse, but it's definitely a apocalypse, right? And apocalypse really means unveiling. It means truth. You know, it means that the veils are being drawn back. The curtains are being drawn back. The light of the truth is, is flooding into, you know, our consciousness, our lives, our communities. And a lot of us aren't interested in the truth. We're not interested in facing that light. So we're going to run back into the dark, you know. Um, and those who run back into the dark are the ones who aren't going to make it, right? Mm. And so when I say people aren't going to make it, what I'm really saying is that, you know, I'm not saying that people are going to die or get killed. What I'm saying is that people aren't going to make the transition into what's being birthed, right? You know, but for those of us who are standing in the light, wrestling with the light, trying to develop a relationship to this truth, you know, we are entering into this really dynamic wrestling that's actually preparing us it's 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 molding us into um into this kind of being prepared for what's coming next being prepared for the birth you know and being able to step in to this reality that's being birthed you know in this period and then for those of us who step into that real reality there's going to be a, a divide that will begin to emerge between us and those who have chosen not to do the work you know, and, and that divide, this is the space that we will have to mourn. You know, we're, we're going to have to meet the pain of the separation with a kind of directness and a kind of compassion and a kind of openness. You know, and we have to also meet it with an intense intention of letting go. Letting people have their agency to be in the dark. Yeah. It, it really strikes me when what you're talking about um, this birth and transformation, this intensified moment of change, and this piece around divide. I think that there's something about you know I do a lot of healing work, and in a lot of ways, healing work is about change. There's a lot of change in there, a lot of transformation in there in a in a particular direction, but it's it's change when we are experiencing or in the process of transformation, it's really hard to say what will be unveiled, discovered, what the shifts will exactly be. And so when you talk about this the divide piece, it's like, oh, there there'll probably be fractures and fissures and potentially even unions that we can't even foresee in this moment. And there's something feels like there's a surrender or something in there. I don't know if that is part of what you feel, but in the, yeah. in the divide, it just, Oh, you're, there's a certain surrender. Um, yeah. And action. There's action to take here in this moment too, but I'm just feeling that tension. I don't, I don't know if you feel that also. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I feel that tension every day, all the time. And for me, it's the, the, the tension of, you know, trusting that whatever will happen needs to happen, you know, and then cultivating a practice that allows me to do this work of transforming whatever I get into something that feels 
clear and direct and restorative and ultimately liberatory. But you have to you have to trust that you have the capacity to do that transformation with whatever arises. Mm. You know, and that creates, you know, that there's so much anxiety, there's this worry, there's fear in that, and that's part of it. Right? You know, none of this is supposed to be easy. You know, because our capacities to understand the world and to understand reality is quite limited. You know, even for those of us who have intuition and insight and vision, you know, it's still there's still a limitation. Mm-hmm. You know, I I I can move deep into uncertainty because I've cultivated the capacity one to hold the space for uncertainty, and secondly. I am so connected to the meaning, the value, the wisdom of uncertainty. You know, so uncertainty actually just becomes a teacher, becomes a guide. You know, so it's not extraordinary for me to feel the anxiety and the fear and the ambiguity. Even today, (laughs) you you know, even before, you know, coming into this, you know, right, just everything that's happening in the world and just even just like 30 minutes ago. You know, I was just sitting and going, like, am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Mm, you know, mm-hmm. what else am I supposed to be doing? The world is falling apart. There's violence against more black bodies. You mm-hmm. know, there's more hurt. There's more pain. There's more trauma. Like, am I supposed to be doing more? Yeah. You know, and I get really unsettled like that sometimes where I'm just like, okay. <laughs> you know, um, and I get off. You know, and I lose confidence, mm. Mm. you know, and even the loss of confidence is also a teacher, mm-hmm. you know. So ultimately, like everything has to be seen as important as necessary and as something that's trying to get us unstuck and liberated. Thank you for um, just even revealing that, that mm-hmm. even as a teacher, there are those moments where you lose things that you have cultivated or they they find their they kind of move away from you and you have to kind of tread a new path back to them i feel like that's a really important thing to share yeah it's and we don't do enough of that kind of vulnerability in the healing work as healers you that's know right. and we both we both know that and i think one of the most you know i don't want to use the word violent but sometimes it can be quite violent for healers to perform Mm -hmm. a kind of confidence and stability you know because for me i can't i can't come into balance or i can't come into clarity if i first if i can't first submit where i feel the instability that's right you know and the lack of confidence that's right you know my my healing and my work as a healer comes from the ways in which i can be vulnerable my vulnerability is actually the tool that I use to heal others around me. That's right. I, w- I was talking to somebody the other day kind of about this and uh, thinking about when we were in algebra or calculus, whatever math class you took in high school, and you could either just put your answers on a piece of paper, but sometimes they would say, show your work, oh, show yeah. how you got there. And I was kind of bringing that up as a challenge to myself really Mm -hmm. because there is a way that I too as a practitioner as a teacher 
I will not intentionally, but more the way that I've been shaped as a therapist to kind of keep my work private. But that's actually not my commitment as a practitioner in community or as a practitioner in movement. It's so, so critical that we show that work. We show how we got there. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as as Whitney said, you know, show me the receipts. That's right. (laughs) You know. um, know? And, you know, and I just, you know, I just want to put out there that, like, you know, and I want to talk particularly about BIPOC, Black healers right now in the fields. You know, there are a lot of a lot of us who don't have receipts, you know, who are trying to put our hands on people and trying to heal them when, in fact, like we're the ones who need to be healed. You know, and oh, yes. and it's nothing but a perpetuation of violence and trauma on bodies all around us. And for me, it's important for me to always show up with my receipts. You know, I will not write a book without first telling you why I am qualified to write a book. Mm-hmm. You know, what my lineages are, who my teachers are, who I am held accountable by. That's right. You know, what my practice is, you know, because... As people, well, when I think about myself as someone who's seeking healing from others, I need you, I need you to show me that you have earned the right to touch me. Yes. That you're not just going to transfer your woundedness yes. into my experience, you know. And I need to see your receipts, you know. Um, and we have to do that. But, you know, a lot of folks, you know, they just show up. They have a pretty dance. They have on a nice outfit. You know, they have, <laughs> you know, pretty, you know, graphics on the social media, you know. And they're also, let's just call into the space, you know, they're also pretty uh-huh. as well. Uh-huh. And so we get real confused, yeah, you know, about that whole thing. And we start going to these folks for healing and we end up actually hurting more. Yeah, I've thought about that before, and it almost seems like we can sometimes think that we're going to turn into that person, Mm -hmm. and that's really the desire, and that all of that can obscure what healing actually could be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really, Mm -hmm. really important. Kind of speaking of the underneath, I feel like this Mm -hmm. book, Love and Rage, Mm -hmm. feels like it speaks so much to the kind of subterranean what sits underneath what Mm -hmm. is unspoken or suppressed um and it feels so timely for this moment um i wonder if you would just tell us what what compelled you kind of speaking of uh grounding in the why write the book but what what compelled you to make this offering right now yeah you know the offering called me into relationship with it because I had no intention of writing a book on anger. I was not interested. Um, I hadn't, I felt as if I had nothing to say, you know, and, you know, in, you know, 2016, the elections came about and then post elections, we were just pissed, you know, and then I realized that we we actually don't have the resources to deal with this. You know, everyone was like, oh, how do I work with being angry and this and that? And I was like, well, the anger isn't the point. It's the hurt. That's the point. Like, we're hurt. And no one was talking about that. 
you know, everyone wanted, uh, you know, an antidote to the anger. And I was like, well, the antidote is actually tending to the woundedness. Mm-hmm. If you want to get to that, you know, and so I knew that that was the work that I had to engage in, you know, because that was the work that it just kind of set right in front of me and was like, it's time for you to do to do this. Mm. You know, um, and that's the point that that that's the part of being a prophet and heal that people don't like to talk about is that like we have to be called into our own healing sometimes. Like we have to be called out into the desert, into the wilderness to do the work on behalf of others, you know. And so this book was my calling into the wilderness because this wilderness was where I needed to roam in order to deepen my own healing around my own woundedness and rage. But it was also the ways in which I would produce something to offer back to the world as well. You know, as you know, I I opened up with the the quote from James Baldwin um, Mm -hmm. from his dialogue, you know, with Nikki Giovanni, where he was just like, you know what, if it hurt you, it hurt me first. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's the accountability piece that I set up in the book. It's like you have to know that if this is hard for you. You have to know it was hard for me first uh-huh. yeah. to do this. And this difficulty is just an expression of my love for you because I want you to get free. But I have to continually be working to free myself as well. That's super, it's super helpful. And I, I, I think about anger a lot. And I found this book really, I felt like it, it met me in some places that I hadn't yet process kind of coming out of working with Black Lives Matter and um, the anger and the grief mix or the anger on top with the grief underneath uh, that I felt so much and that we were expressing so much. So it felt, um, I don't, it, it felt just like a generous offering to be met personally there. And um I was telling you before we got on the mm-hmm. call that I, I was feeling really angry this morning, mm-hmm. really, really mm-hmm. angry this morning. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the kind of anger that for my body just immobilizes me because it mm-hmm. feels like every action might be dangerous. I'm so angry. Yeah. I wonder for you, and I guess I will say that I felt angry just given the frequency and kinds of violence we're experiencing the shooting of Jacob Blake, still kind of reeling from the women, three trans women that were assaulted, I think just last week. And I also see this moment, this political moment, anger is playing such a role, Mm -hmm. such a role. And I'm wondering, how do you see anger being used and also Mm -hmm. to be misused in this moment? Mm You know, it takes such a high level of training to use anger in a way that's not depleting, just doesn't reproduce violence and aggression and frustration. And one of the reasons I wrote the book, because there's so many people who are just like, I have my anger under control, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's just like, well, I don't, anger isn't something that you control. Anger is something that you live with, you know, you ally with. And so I know I knew that we needed some wisdom around that, you know, and for most of us, we are just reacting to the anger, you know, we're just we're in this compulsory relationship 
with not just anger, but a lot of emotions, but mm -hmm. we're just, we're feeling the anger and we react, you know, and often we're reacting in ways that increase harm, that increase the suffering, you know, and what my practice has been for years is learning how to accompany my anger in a way that I can have an intention around how I choose to work with my anger, you know, and my intention is to get free and to free others, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and at some point, you know, we can talk about being angry all the time, but at some point you all have to talk about being hurt. And not only do we have to talk about being hurt, we have to talk about tending to the hurt, right? And no, and when we talk about tending to the hurt, we have to also talk about allowing our hearts to break and consenting to that brokenheartedness. To be in this body, to be in the black queer body in this world means that like one of the things that I experienced was perpetual heartbreak. But the moment I started experiencing agency was the moment I began to say, you know what, since you're here, I'm going to allow you to be here. Instead of always running away, always resisting, always reacting, I consent to this brokenheartedness. And for me, that began the transformation, that began the liberation, that began the space that I called into my practice to hold the brokenheartedness. So the brokenheartedness isn't the totality of my experience because in the space, there are other things like joy, happiness, appreciation, gratitude, and everything is held in my experience. You know, So I'm not contracted around the brokenheartedness, which many of us are. Many of us are, and I think in part, it's because of the constant nature of it. When you talk yes. about being in a black queer body, mm -hmm. leaving your home and experiencing that, which I very much relate to, yeah. I sometimes struggle with how do we tend to that with how perpetual it feels? How do we do that? I don't know if you yeah. have any guidance there. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, so many things are perpetual. And for me, I rely on other what i call other sources of refuge to help me hold the the perpetual nature of the brokenheartedness so my ancestors for instance whom i call on to help me hold the brokenheartedness the earth i call on i call on the deities you know and these pantheons of deities that i am initiated initiated into to help me hold the brokenheartedness and so i believe as part of my belief system that because it's mine, it doesn't mean that I can't call into my experience other energies, other beings to help me tend to it. And then once, once I begin to experience that, the perpetual nature of the brokenheartedness isn't like the main thing that I'm focusing on. It's just one experience that I'm having among many experiences in one moment. You know, I still have a deep connection to my joy, to my happiness, to my gratitude, even if I'm in the midst of trying to be in a relationship to a brokenheartedness. I can be brokenhearted and happy at the same time. I can wake up and having to like deal with, you know, the reality of violence against members of our communities. I can still feel that, I can still see it, I can still be outraged, but I can still have a connection to the ways in which I experience happiness and gratitude. You know, and it's it's not happiness and gratitude because of something that I have or because, oh, I'm happy because I wasn't the one who got shot, right? You know, it's not that kind of happiness. It's really the happiness is saying that, you know what, this isn't my home. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, for in my belief system, this isn't my home. I'm moving through this relative world. I'm moving through this space. And yes, and there is pain, there's suffering, you know, but I am happy and grateful because I am choosing to be of help, to do something, to liberate others, to be an agent of healing. Mm-hmm. You know, there's great darkness, but I am happy because I am choosing to cultivate light for others around me, you know, and I'm happy that there are so many other people who are bringing light into this world as well, you know, and I'm confident that things are getting better. Even if it's not so evident, it's not so like upfront, I deeply feel that like everything that I do and we do together and things that all of us do as a community, the things that we do makes it better. And I know that, another reason I know that because it's like James Baldwin made my life better. That's right. Fannie Lou, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer made my life better. That's right. Andre Lord made my life yes. better. Essex Hemphill made my life better. Yes. You know, I mean, countless, countless folks have entered into this world and they did their work. And because they did their work, I have light. And if I do my work, then I offer light to my descendants. Mm -hmm. I get really excited about that. That's really exciting. Yeah. It feels like, to be honest, it feels very, how do I say it? Available to all of us in a way. But it also, there's something, I don't know if it's just because it's you and me talking right now, that I'm like, there's something so black in that emotional range too, where that feels like something that we have cultivated over time and experience. And that feels so resourcing to me too. Like it just makes me, it, it, it really humbles me and puts me in a place of honor for all those folks and so many more that you named that have showed us how to hold all of that at once, the heartbreak and the joy. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful, wonderful to be in that lineage. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's also for me, you know, those are our ancestors, but, you know, that our ancestors are always with us. They're always, they're holding on to us, you know, and this gets me through the day is remembering how oh, my ancestors are here with me. They're like, they're here teaching me, holding me, tending to me, you know, because they survived. And I survive only because they survived, you know, and I survive also because I want my descendants to survive. But in this body, in this moment, what I experience in this life is not just surviving, but I also experience thriving. You know, I've learned how to thrive in these systems that were created to annihilate me. That's right. That's right. You know, and I and I take that's one of the things I take refuge in. It's like, yeah, you can create any kind of system you need to or whatever to erase me, to annihilate me. But I have this light, you know, that you have no agency over. And that's what our ancestors practice. You know, no, no matter the depths of systematic slavery, chattel slavery, the transatlantic passage, the middle passage, no matter what it was, our light never dimmed. That's right. You know, it may have gotten weak, you know, it may have gotten very clouded over. It didn't extinguish itself. And so that's what I, I celebrate that every day. You know, I celebrate, I wake up every day offering to my ancestors, mm-hmm. you know, remembering that I would not be here 
without their resiliency. You mentioned in the book, uh, mm-hmm. I think you talk about the song, I Shall Not Be Moved. Yes. And what that meant. And I, I have had this little light of mine going through mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. for the last several months. And I, you know, it's such a simple, we think it's a simple song, but there's such a technology to that song. There's such a commitment yes. embedded in that song to yes. what you're talking about, to shining that light regardless, to figuring out, finding a way to give room for what is untouchable, really, which is the essence Mm of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was listening to a speech. I think it may have been from family members from Jacob Blake's family or I can't remember if it was George Ford's family, but I was watching it actually today. And the statement that I've heard so often, you know, these days is that we love this country despite the fact that we should actually hate it. And that's something that it throws us back into my face, you know, in a way that's gentle and kind, but still it throws something in my face where it's like, this is the light, Hmm. you know, that I'm going to continue to love when it actually makes more sense for me to hate. Mm -hmm. I'm going to love you because... I am trying to love myself. And when I stop loving myself, that's when I give myself to the hate, to the mm-hmm. same violence that has created the systems in which we struggle to be well in. Yeah. For, you know, for years in my life, I just thought that was just weak. <laughs> I was like, you know, I'm not going to love this country. I'm not going to love the people who hurt me. Fuck that, right? You know, but then I realized this is actually about me. It's about my light. It's about my authenticity. I will love you. It doesn't mean that like I am going to forget what you've done to me. It's not like I'm just going to let you keep doing what you want to to me. It means that like I am choosing not to intentionally return the hate that you give mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. You know, because I want to survive. Mm-hmm. I want to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. And boundaries are so key inside of how we renegotiate relationship yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. That allows for all of that to exist. Exactly. I, I have a another question for you, just to drop us into anger even a bit more. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the relationship between anger and truth and our kind of inherent power? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I think the energy of anger um, can actually help us to clarify our truth. Anger, anger for me. Once I have clarity and space around my anger, I, anger actually, it propels me through ambiguity, you know, and because on, on one hand, yeah, anger, when I, when I experience anger, anger is telling me, okay, something's off. And then I can use that anger to like figure out what exactly is off. And I can also take another step further and, and, and use the anger to pinpoint exactly what that origin is, that origin of, of getting off or being triggered or being hurt or wounded. I can get there a lot quicker. And that helps me to to not waste anger, you know. And, I, and again, when we react to anger, we're wasting it. But anger is there. It's this potent energy that we can use to get a lot done. But if we don't have the space or the intention, then we end up just reacting to it in a way that just perpetuates. This is really good, this wasting anger, because I often mm-hmm. see in myself and in other people, mm-hmm. we can have the tendency to... I feel anger. I want to expel it or transfer it or somehow get it out of my person. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you're saying that's also potentially a waste of, yeah, the purpose of it. 
Well, yeah, yeah. And that's I think that's how systems of oppression perpetuate itself. Because I think oppressed people are taught to be, in a way, disembodied. We're conditioned to be disembodied, and thus we're disconnected from the experience of anger. So we're disconnected from this vital, well, two vital things, the body and anger, two very important things that we need in order to disrupt systems of oppression, right? You know, this is why slavery existed for so long, you know, because you took away agency of body. Um, and then when we started getting more agency back, we started connecting to that anger. And that's what gave rise to the civil rights movement, black power movement, you know, also believe it gets given rise to the movement for black lives as well. For me, these, these movements, these moments in history have been about reclaiming our bodies and also reclaiming the anger that comes out of our experience of being deeply wounded, mm-hmm. deeply hurt, you know, but also at the same time, coming from a lineage and an ancestry that also valued love in the midst of all of that. If Black folks didn't have that love, this country would have been burned down centuries ago. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have a couple more questions for you. And mm-hmm. one is just uh, kind of practically in this moment, how do you work with anger? Mm-hmm. We're all feeling it. But do you have any yeah. kind of guides or how we practically work with it. Yeah. You know, my really basic practice, and of course I, you know, talk about this a lot in the book, I just, I first and foremost see it and notice it and acknowledge it. You know, like my primary statement to myself when I'm trying to work with anger is, is saying, I am angry. And there you are. You know, and then looking at all the ways Anger shows up for me as a mental experience and as a physical experience, you know. And then once I get that, I drop beneath the anger and I say, you know what? I'm also hurt. I'm also wounded. There's my trauma. You know. You know this. Even today, I was like really angry about something. This was like <laughs> this was before losing confidence and <laughs> more, you know. <laughs> but before that, I just got really like, it, you know, it's a process. It goes from one thing to another. It's like a cycle, which I'm familiar with. But you know, it began with just feeling as if, you know, I was losing agency to my body, to my time, you know, um, and feeling that anger come up you know, over, you know, over and over again, you know, earlier today, you know, I was like, okay, there you are, (laughs) you know, there you are, you know, and then in that moment, I give space for that whole experience, you know, and when I give it the space, I begin to experience it, you know, and most people have never experienced their anger, Mm. you know, yeah, um, Once you make it a habit to begin to experience your anger, then the anger will transform. You know, then the anger becomes something that's actually, as I was talking about earlier, begins to teach us. Mm-hmm. You know, it begins to show us these aspects of who and what we are. It begins to show us how to do the work in a way that's pre- more precise, more intelligent, more intentional, instead of just like reacting. And just doing all this shit that doesn't get anything done, that doesn't actually disrupt the systems, but perpetuates the systems. You know, like we have to do our individual work of metabolizing our own anger mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. now. And that's the only way we can join in a collective, the collective work of metabolizing the collective anger, you know, and then moving as a collective and learning how to actually go to the root. 
of exactly what's happening for us and what's perpetuating the suffering for all of us. That's right. Thank and you. anger is just a part of my life. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. it, you know. At the end of the day, it's just like this is a this is an extraordinary. This isn't a punishment. This is what it means to be human. You know, and I know that part of my oppression and oppression of my ancestors have been about denying our humanity as well. Yeah, I'm kind of feeling that in relationship. I think you talked about it in the book some, but the way our anger and being able to actually embody and feel our anger has been so shaped by oppression so that some bodies are allowed certain expressions of anger and some bodies are threatened with death for expressing the same kind of anger. So I, I wonder if you can talk about that, the kind of politics of, of the expression mm-hmm. of anger and how that's mm-hmm. impacted your own practice. Yeah, you know, early on for me, I knew just from the data that I saw around me and got from around me that like, if I expressed anger, then I would be heavily policed, heavily disciplined. So the way for me to survive in the world was to to rechannel that anger into passive aggressiveness, you know, was mm. to hide that anger, you know, and I felt powerful like that. I felt powerful walking into situations where I would never let on that I hated you and couldn't stand you. I would just sit there and smile at you, but I would be plotting how to, like, get back, <laughs> you know, or plotting how to hurt you in the ways in which you were hurting me as well, you know, because that the the heart of that kind of passive aggressive manipulation is getting people to trust you and then using that trust mm, against them. Wow, wow, wow. You know? mm-hmm. And I just felt like, you know, I just felt like that was my superhuman ability. Like that was my superpower is to get people to trust me and then completely wreck them. Mm. You know, um, be it talking shit behind their backs, be it like snitching when I was younger. But as I got older, it was just like, no, you know, it was just like you thinking that I'm going to do what you want me to do. I'm just going to do something opposite. You know, I'm going to tell you to fuck you, mm-hmm. you know, and that was it. That was my superhuman ability. And I realized, you know what, that actually is was harming me. You know, and that was actually disrupting the ways in which I felt like I wasn't being effective as an as an activist, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, in the world, you know. And so I had to reclaim that, you know, and I think that a lot of people get these labels. You know, we grow up in these situations where, you know, this is what we have to do to be a good child, you know, or when I was growing up, this is what a good boy is. Or this Mm -hmm. is what a good girl is, Mm -hmm. you know, and we fall into those, you know, to those performances, you know, and when I started embracing my anger, it was so interesting that like I was no longer a good boy anymore, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, and even to this day, some of my elders are like, you know, maybe you should tone it down a little bit, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but they come out of that generation, though. Yeah. You know, um. And so, and I just think, you know, that some of us, you know, we were perpetually burdened with the label of being angry as well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like you're, you're an angry, you're an angry, angry black women, that trope, that That's whole right. thing, you know, and, and when I sit with folks and they're like, what do I do with the label? I was like, be angry. <laughs> like, 
you know, it's like you have to take that power away from the label and say, yeah, I am angry. Yeah, that's right. You know, you know, you just can't submit to that over and over again. You know, and that's why I had to do, you know, just across the board, not just with anger, but a lot of things. It's like, no, I am experiencing a lot of anger. I am sad. You know, um, I am all kinds of stuff because I am human. Mm-hmm. And what that's you're right. actually telling me when you're policing me is that, like, I am, I don't deserve to be human. You know? Yeah. yeah. And I think one thing that Black people give to the world is an expression of deep, clear, profound, restorative humanity. You know, and that's threatening. Yes. Yes. Because it reorganizes what's important. Yeah. 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 And then it throws these supremacies back, back to these sources. You know, that's what our, our art comes from, our movement, our music, our food comes out of that deep humanity, that deep, like messy, beautiful, sweaty, sweet, sexy, ugly humanity. Yes. Yes. And of course, you know, know, patriarchal, white supremacist, capitalistic culture isn't interested in that messiness. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. they're not interested in that passion. Mm -hmm. That's right. In the interest of time, I'm going to ask one more here, which is, uh, I think my question is, why spirituality now? Why is that a worthwhile way to engage in practice or meaning making? Why, as we're on the edge of things, when it feels like so much is known about the world, why engage in those kinds of practices with things that feel kind of unknown or unseeable? Well, th- that's that's the thing itself. I don't think we know as much about the world as we think we do. And I think when I when I'm engaging in in the path, what is actually doing is opening the the totality of the world to me. That the world is much more than what my senses, you know, can sense and interact with. That there is that the world is just energy. You know, it's it's swirls and expressions of energy that take on forms and, 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 you know, different expressions. And I want to be in relationship to that energetic expression of reality, you know, because when the world gets so solid and real for some of us, we feel trapped by it. And that's not the truth. You know, the truth is that the world, because of its energetic nature, is always shifting, is always changing. You know, something that feels solid is just an illusion. And when I can connect to that illusionary nature, that energetic nature of everything, then I begin to feel freedom. You know, it's in a really practical thing. It's like walking outside, walking down the sidewalk in my neighborhood and like feeling this burden of what it feels like to be a black man walking down a sidewalk and the paranoia, the fear, the anxiety, the trauma, you know, that I experience every time I walk outside. But what I also sense beneath that is something that is not so solid, that's not so real, that there's an illusion and a play and a performance to all of this as well. That's and that's where I find my liberation and fluidity. And, you know, I'm much more than just this black man, right? And spirituality reveals the truth of who I am. It reveals the truth of who everyone is. 
you know, and as our ancestors would say all the time, it's like this world is not our home, you know, and I so I, I take a lot of refuge in understanding that like, yeah, I'm passing through this experience, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to be here forever. But I am here partially because I am needing to learn something in mm -hmm. order to, to continue the work and the process of liberation and ultimately that spirituality as well, getting free transcending everything transcending the duality transcending the relative into something that's more ultimate more divine much more liberatory thank you it was really nice to be in conversation with you this is our first time meeting and i feel so yeah. enriched by the conversation i took a, a lot of notes and i feel really uh, alive and full by all that you shared. So I really, I really want to thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. I have gotten so much out of this conversation and holding the space, sharing the space, you know, with you as well. Thank you. Finding Our Way is co-produced and edited by Eddie Hemphill, co-production and visual design by Devin Delania. Please make sure to rate, subscribe, and review wherever it is that you listen to this podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at Finding Our Way Podcast or email us with questions, suggestions, or feedback at findingourwaypod at gmail.com. You can also help sustain the podcast by becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. You can find us on Patreon at Finding Our Way Podcast. Thank you for listening to Finding Our Way. Finding Our Way.